0: The show!
1: You have all made it to the dance. dance.
0: dance. 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 You have all made it, made it murders. Coming to you from the X Access. It's John of All Trades with your host, John X. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the John of All Trades Podcast, episode 241. I'm your host, John X. Thank you for joining us. Glad to have you back once again. And man, what a show I've got for you this week. Coming back after two and a half years, I've got R. Alan Brooks. That's right. He was on here previously talking about The Burning Metronome. That is a great book. Earned him a ton of acclaim. And he gives an update on what's happening on that book on this week's show. But that's not what we're talking about this week. What we're talking about is Anguish Garden. That's right. It's his brand new project. It's very, very exciting. It's taking on white supremacy from a very interesting angle. And you know what? It was announced Christmas Eve. I remember reading a Colorado Sun article and I go, you know what? Good for Alan. Big, long piece shared on social media. I thought this is fantastic. The next day, Christmas Day, Alan gets a death threat over his Instagram account. That's right. Some dude read the headline that said something to the effect of local comics artist takes on white supremacy in new book. I'm butchering that, but it's something to that effect and basically goes on Instagram anonymously and says, you know what? I'm going to kill you. So I'd been thinking about having Alan on the show again, because number one, he's just a great guy and an amazingly talented professional. And in the first half of this episode, We end up talking a lot about the various projects that he's got going. He hosts an open mic at Ophelia's, backed by a jazz band where he freestyles. We talk about his podcast, Motherfucker in a Cape. We talk about his comic, Running in the Colorado Sun, called What Did I Miss? And of course, we talk about Anguish Garden. So Alan has art and talent and amazing things just coming from within him. And he and I, when we met the first time, I go, you know what? This is my guy. Like, I like this guy. I just like talking to him. I think we're on a similar wavelength. I think we've got a very similar vibe. And when we turned the mics off, we kind of agreed to that. I don't want to make it seem like I'm trying to elevate myself here and be cooler than I am. But I genuinely adore my time with Alan. And I really need to reach out to him more often. But he beat me to it. He said, hey, would you have me back on the show? Or, hey, would you help me share some info about this Kickstarter I have going for Anguish Garden. So that brings me to point number two. Anguish Garden, there's a Kickstarter. You should support it. As I record this, I have kicked him some money because I want to see this book get made. I want to piss off that white supremacist. And you know what? I'm just going to put this on record. I want to piss off all white supremacists. They're awful. These people have a viewpoint that I 100% disagree with. So if we can drag their terrible opinions into the light and hopefully just eradicate the mindset. That leads to the victimhood of something as stupid as white supremacy, then let's do it. Okay? And one small way you can do that is by donating to this book. I've seen the seven-page preview. It's on the Kickstarter. You can find it linked on the John of All Trades Companion blog piece. That's john of alltrades.us, J-O-N of all trades.us. If you're listening to this on some sort of podcatcher, check out the show notes. There'll be a link in there as well. Some cool rewards. But more importantly, let's help local artists get good, important, entertaining, and vital art made. Now, the second half of this podcast, we not only talk about the book, but we talk about what inspired it. And he tells this story of a book he read about someone who was raised in white supremacy who eventually came around to say, ooh, this is not the way to go. This is not the way to live life. This is not a philosophy I subscribe to anymore. So he became a race trader. And from there, we end up talking about his experience As a black man in America. And we talk about it in a very candid, very open, very honest way. It's not in a heavy-handed way, but he does share with me some of his interesting experiences of being dehumanized and maybe not in the way that you are picturing. Maybe not in the way that you were thinking. It was certainly eye-opening for me, and I think that's the minimum you can ask someone who was fortunate enough to be a white, straight, cisgendered dude in America in 2020, right? Maybe think with a little bit more nuance, maybe think with a little more complexity. If we can all do that, maybe we'll all be a little bit better. And some of the things that we're experiencing, some of the discord, some of the acrimony goes away. I'm not trying to be pie in the sky. I'm not trying to be highfalutin. I want to be realistic here, but I think if we can all have open and honest conversations where we're willing to look inward and assess ourselves, we'll be better off for it. So this conversation is, is enormously entertaining, it is enormously instructive, and you know what? Alan and I, I think, just had a great vibe talking to each other. I'm certainly not gonna speak for him, but from my end, I adored this chat, I really appreciate Alan as a person and the work he's doing, and I'm proud to bring this episode to you. So, without further delay, let's do exactly that. Episode 241 features R. Alan Brooks. He is the creator of Anguish Garden. He writes the comic What Did I Miss? weekly in the Colorado Sun. He's the creator of the Motherfucker in a Cape podcast. He's the creator of the Burning Metronome. He is a man about town, doing all sorts of artistic endeavors, and I'm proud to bring him to you right now. Episode 241, featuring R. Alan Brooks, starts right now. This is the first
1: time that I've had that. Like, I expected it before. Sure. Especially like with that weekly comic for the Colorado Sun. Yeah. Like I talked about a lot of stuff in there. Oh yeah. But this one that isn't even out yet <laughs> is the one I get death threats for, you know.
0: Yeah, that's wild to me. So we'll get right into it. This is Alan Brooks coming back. Thanks for coming back. <laughs>
1: Thanks for having me. Yeah,
0: you um you were on here and I can't even remember when, but we were talking about the burning metronome. Yeah. After we met at John Wenzel's birthday party. Yep. Which apparently he's been down with the plague for yeah, the last couple of that. months. Yeah. Jeez. Um which was a great book, and from there you got the gig at the Colorado Sun. Gosh, kind of a lot's happened since then. A lot has happened since then. Yeah. You're, you're still doing the uh, the gig at Ophelia's, right? Yeah. What is yeah. that?
1: So that's uh, me rapping with the jazz band, and uh, I basically freestyle, and then hire a keyboard player and a drummer to back me up. Wow. It's an open mic, so anybody who gets on stage, the uh, the band will improv behind them. Jeez. Any style of music.
0: That's uh, that strikes me as a very high wire kind of thing. Yeah. Um, especially freestyle because you're kinda of up there without a net. I mean, do you go in with like a plan or I, that that's just uh, a world that's kinda of foreign to me.
1: Yeah, uh so you know, my twenties were spent like being in parking lots and uh and just battle raps. Like Oh wow, yeah. yeah. So uh freestyle is not it's perilous to me. But it is interesting because uh, the, the reason I hire jazz musicians is because they're the only musicians who are taught to improv. Yeah, yeah. So then we can all freestyle together. Nice. Which is dope. Um, but when I'm doing a show like that, it's not quite the same. So like, if I'm like in a street cypher, like a you know, circle of people who mm-hmm. are freestyling, then all I'm concentrating on is the beat, and then I can just zone out, right? Wow. But when I'm hosting an event, I have to try to like, Freestyle, while also paying attention to the crowd dynamics, are they involved? Um, are my musicians taken care of? Is the management happy? <laughs> are, you know, are we uh, getting paid well? Am I creating an environment that people feel comfortable coming on stage? Like all of that's on my mind. Wow! So uh, the freestyle, I would say, is uh, not quite as free. Like, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it, I mean, I think I do good. Like people come up and they like it and stuff like that. But it's not like next level to me.
0: Yeah, I, it's amazing to me because. I can get up in front of an audience if I'm doing like a corporate event, you know, like I speak in front of people all the time and I, and I host this show and I know how to hold an audience's attention and get where I need to go and go off script where I need to. Mm -hmm. But the added complexity to me is making that rhyme, (laughs) right? And making it sound mellifluous. Yeah. Which to me is just a skill that I can't relate to. So how do you cultivate that? I mean, aside from doing it over and over again. Yeah. How do you go in, like, with what kind of mindset do you have going in?
1: You know, I think there's kind of, in, in my experience, sort of two ways to freestyle. One is I'm going to freestyle about a thing mm. and just find the rhyming words, Yeah, which I don't think I'm as good at. Okay. Uh, and the other is, uh, it's kind of like what I imagine surfing to be like. All right. So, like, you're just launching out into, into something, and then you hear the rhyming word, and it'll take you a whole different way. So you can kind of be all over like different mm. topics and stuff like that. But it it it's uh, this beautiful, fun tapestry. Yeah. And then sometimes, uh, sometimes I say things that impress myself.
0: Sometimes, <laughs> sometimes I don't. <laughs> you know. Well, yeah. Sometimes it comes from depths. And yeah. I mean, it's it's one of those things where I hear people talk about, and and I do this too. Like because I have writing assignments. Mine aren't real exciting or glamorous. <laughs> okay. You know, I'm writing for clients and yeah. it's corporate speak. But I like to give the creative process as wide a birth as possible Mm -hmm. because I never know where it's going to come from. Yeah. And I'll end up writing, say, like I'm ghostwriting letters of some sort. Yeah. And I have to find new entry points to write them because they can't all sound the same. Mm -hmm. And I'll get like a word or a phrase and I can build an entire thing around that. So to me, that's almost like the first way you described freestyling Mm -hmm. because... I know where I need to get to. I know where it needs to end up. I just don't know exactly how I'm going to get there. Yeah. And then I'll find the one thing that ignites it and I'll build everything off of that. Yeah. Which is fascinating.
1: That's more like my, uh, songwriting process. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. Uh, this is an interesting thing. So, uh, mutiny information cafe down on South Broadway. It's home to a lot of cool things, including things I do. I was there writing a comic script once and, uh, they had, a uh, like, a. Freestyle rap thing happening mm-hmm. in the background, and i didn't I didn't know I just happened to be there, so I was like, Let me close my laptop and join these fools, right? So, <laughs> right so I go back there and uh and they're they're young right, so they're like finding their voices on the mic and stuff like that, you know, it's just like mm-hmm. experience stuff right, so like um, yeah, you're
0: getting at bats, yeah, to, to use a baseball metaphor, yeah,
1: right, yeah, uh, and you know just because I've been doing it longer, you know, I have a little more like presence, right, sure, and then my my voice also kind of tributes to like so like you know they're like yeah i step into the place and then i come up, up like that kind of thing right yeah. and then i come and i'm like yeah i'll kick it up and what you know kind of. and, uh, you it was, come, it's like a man playing with children <laughs> right
0: yeah it was
1: it was it was great right and this dj was and i hadn't done it in, like in years with just a dj and mcs and i loved it right yeah and so i did it for like 10 minutes 15 minutes or something and then i went back and i just got back on my laptop and so like uh when they continued for a while, and then when it ended, they were, like, filtering out, and they were like, there's that dude on his laptop now? <laughs> like, some dude just came and didn't identify himself.
0: <laughs> just popped in. <laughs> right.
1: Freestyle, killed him, and then went back, and now he's writing. He's doing homework? What's he doing? <laughs> dude,
0: that's one of my favorite things is always keep them guessing. Right. Right? Always play with their minds. Always keep them guessing. Like, I, I'm with a lot of stuffy, uptight corporate people. Yeah. And they're like, what'd you do this weekend? I'm like, oh, I went to this punk show, you know, at the Gothic. <laughs> All right. And they're like, you're into punk rock? I'm like, yeah. <laughs> that's like my thing. Yeah. Um. Or, you know, we traveled to LA to go see this professional wrestling show. Nice. You know, like, yeah. <laughs> Um. but always keep them guessing, you know, stay crunchy. And that's one of my favorite things about you is you got your hands in so many different things. I appreciate it. Teaching at Regis. Yeah. Comic in the Colorado Sun. what did I miss? Yeah. Uh Motherfucker in a Cape podcast.
1: Yeah. How's that going? That's going pretty good. Uh, I have one uh, tomorrow, in fact. I'll okay. be interviewing. Uh,
0: well, I mean, the, uh, uh, yeah, it I comes mean, out a week right, ago. Right.
1: <laughs> well, uh, then you'll see it online. But it's Jenny Parks. And she's, oh, nice. Uh, she's all interesting. Right. She does uh, these cat illustrations. She does pop culture figures as cats. Oh, wow. So her books are in Barnes & Noble. It's like three, maybe two Star Trek cat books. Oh, nice. All, so right. all the characters from Star Trek drawn as cats. <laughs> <laughs> and it's and a really good illustration. So, yeah, I think, you know,
0: that'll be a good one. Yeah, that's like I, – I have up here a cross-stitched lyric from DMX in, uh, in a frame that I bought from a punk rock flea market. Yeah. I love stuff like that that seems too weird to exist. Right, right. right? Where, so it's like, I'm gonna draw all the Star Trek characters as cats. That's like my favorite <laughs> genre of types of things. You know right, what I mean? Right. <laughs> um, okay, so what else? Uh, author of The Burning Metronome. Yeah. Um, are you pretty much at the tail end of that right now? Because I know you were hustling it for a long time.
1: Yeah, so I wrote a second book. So I had to say, uh, comics are hard, man. Yeah. Um, so. Of You know, as uh, I've been a life, I've been working on artistic collaborations all my life, and I found that comic book artists are the hardest to get things finished with. And there are reasons, uh, even though it aggravates me. Like, I think <laughs> um, comic book artists have to deal with whatever, every artist has to deal with whatever insecurities and imposter syndrome and all that stuff. Oh, sure. But on top of that, drawing a comic is labor intensive, right? Yeah. Like. It's like drawing like 200 tiny illustrations <laughs> per chapter, right? Oh. And you think as an artist, you could draw one illustration and sell it for $50, $100, $150, whatever, whatever level you're yeah, yeah. right? Yeah. But for a comic, you spend all of this time drawing all of these intricate things, and you could maybe sell the comic for $5.
0: Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah, but you hope to do that, you know, a few thousand times, which I suppose is the difference. Yeah. Like the economics are are different but you know ultimately you hope it works out in the end right but i could see where you'd burn out doing that too
1: yeah so uh uh so i guess that was the the long way around to the answer to your question so i wrote the next burning metronome uh january of twenty twenty nineteen. 2019
0: okay so like a year and some change ago yeah
1: uh no december 2018 and then i had a uh, one artist who was supposed to do it he didn't work out and i had another one supposed to do it he didn't work out hmm. Then I decided, okay, I'll break it up. You know, there are three short stories. I'll have different artists do these stories. Yeah. And uh, then two came through. One of them fell off. And then I decided to draw the last story. Uh, and then I needed uh, someone to color it, and she didn't work out. <laughs> <And so laughs> Jeez. Now I have a new person who's coloring it. So okay. Uh, so I mean, it's been it's been done. You know. Right. I mean, from my perspective. Right. But uh the the person who's coloring it now is actually Corey Redford who does the art for what I miss in the Colorado Oh Sun. good, okay. Yeah, and so
0: um wasn't that long a walk after all, was it? <laughs> right, right.
1: So <laughs> it seems uh optimistic. She's sending me pages now and they look great.
0: Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. So the main reason we're here is because you got a Kickstarter going. That's right. For Anguish Garden. Yeah. Which is your new project. And when I read about it and I read about this on Christmas too. Oh, okay. So like the story I think was Christmas Eve. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then you shared a post on Christmas day, which put me on my ass. Huh. Um, can you take me through sort of what is Anguish Garden? Yeah. And I know these are fairly rote and prosaic questions, but for anyone who's unfamiliar, right? you know, I think we probably owe it to him to explain what it is and how it came to be. So would you do yeah, that? That's what I'm here to do. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, okay. So, Anguish Garden is a post-apocalyptic Western. That's kind of the, the short sell, right, with a um, female protagonist who's like a teenager, 19 so
0: or so. Um, Do you have any particular time that this takes place? I mean, post-apocalyptic. It's a not-too-distant future. Okay, That's kind of gotcha. the idea. Yeah.
1: So the idea is uh, basically this is the aftermath of an, a war with aliens that humanity had um, maybe five years after the war. The lead character Zola, she was raised— to go to war. And right when she graduated from like her war school, um, the war was over. So in the aftermath of the war, there's some aliens left on earth. There's some human beings that are infected by an alien virus. Hmm. Uh, those people are quarantined in a big area uh, called Anguish garden, okay. which is the slang because right.
0: Like, there's no way they would brand yeah, it. That, right. 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 <laughs>
1: Because, uh, yeah, the government, I think, just calls it the quarantine, but, sure, uh, I, it's funny I say that, I, I think, when I wrote it, but <laughs> anyway. <laughs> so, yeah, the government calls it quarantine, and then, um, people in just slang call it anguish garden.
0: Yeah, colloquially. Right. It's known as anguish garden. Yeah. Yeah, I get it.
1: So, uh, Zola's job is to sort of bounty hunt, track down people who are infected, and force them to go to the, this, um, this quarantine.
0: Okay. To the quarantine to what end? To, till they get uh, better or till well,
1: that's kind of the question right right, yeah, yeah. what happens yeah, there? and it's supposed okay. to be like uh just to separate healthy humans uh just to save healthy humans by separating the ones who are infected right okay, but there the question arises of whether uh the infection actually presents a threat, whether people are actually infected, whether it's just poor people who are being sent to anguish garden, like ah. all of that kind of stuff right
0: mm-hmm.
1: I mean, I started with this idea of liking the picture of a young female gunslinger, you know?
0: Yeah. That's very cool sounding. Right on. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh, and then I was looking at things like how uh, human beings tend to make monsters out of groups that we're not a part of, hmm. um, like the other. Like oh, yeah, the, yeah. yeah. The, the other is a monster, right? And so I was thinking about during the the midterms, uh, the midterm elections, how uh, there are a lot of Republican – Politicians were talking about these, this caravan. That was oh, right. Do you remember that? Like, uh, yeah. yeah.
0: I actually do. I hadn't thought of it in a yeah. while.
1: The, the, of course, because as soon as the elections were over, you yeah. didn't mention it anymore. Yeah. What do you right. know?
0: Right. What are the odds? Right. Yeah.
1: So there's this caravan of South Americans who are criminals and, and murderers and rapists, and they're coming to America. And they're on the way. Right. They it's are, like Mad Max. Right. Right. Yeah. And they kept like making them into this terrible beast, this monster. Mm-hmm. And then- when the elections are over, we haven't heard a thing. No caravan arrived. They don't even mention it anymore. Yeah. They just use it as a fear tactic to get people to vote the way they wanted them to vote. So I'm sort of fascinated by this idea of taking a group of people and making them into this hideous beast and using that fear to manipulate people
0: into your movement, you mm. know? And to whatever end you actually have. Right. Like you're using this uh, for some sort of nefarious or subversive end. Yeah. That that isn't what is stated as the actual reason for doing it. Right. 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 Right.
1: And so, yeah. So in in, in this story, the idea that uh, people can be thought of as an alien threat when possibly they don't present any threat, you know, all of that started to become really interesting to me. Yeah. Um, Along the way, I read uh, this book called rising out of hatred it's about a uh, Derek black um are you familiar with it you read it so. I, i've read the interview yeah. where
0: you talk about this okay. um and by the way you could not pick a better ironic name for a child right. born into white supremacy right, right? yeah then Derek black
1: seriously yeah and so his father's don black uh his father founded the number uh, the biggest white supremacy website in the world called stormfront
0: Oh, Jesus. Yeah. He founded Stormfront? Yeah, you're familiar with it. Yeah. I've, I've heard of it because living in America in 20, from, I don't know, 2016, let's call it, to 2020, the fact that I have to think a lot about decoding like white nationalist shit. Right. Like, I was, and I know how I look, right? <laughs> I have blonde hair, green eyes. I have sort of this like alt-right mixologist haircut. <laughs> and like, you know what I mean? So I have to be extra vigilant about this kind right, of thing. Right. So I'll give you an example of this. I was at my kid's school uh-huh. and they were telling me like, you know, bring her folder back or, or bl- wash her blanket, you know, something, right? Yeah. Just some rote mundane thing. I go, perfect. And uh, I just, I threw up the okay. Yeah. Right. Just yeah. met my, this is radio. So, you know, met my index finger and thumb with the other three fingers up. And I go, Okay, nope. And I switched it to a thumbs up. Right. And I said to her teachers, I'm like, I'm not one of those guys, okay? Right. And I can't believe that I have to actually qualify that using this symbol that yeah. used to not mean anything beyond, hey, okay, I right. got it. Right. You know? So the fact that that we're decoding Nazi shit mm-hmm. in 2020 is just enormously dispiriting to me. Yeah. And yeah, it frustrates man. the hell out of me. Yeah. So, yeah, I know what Stormfront is, unfortunately. Okay.
1: Well, okay, so, uh, David Duke was, uh, Derek Black's godfather. Oh, jeez. Uh, Derek Black's mother used to date David Duke, in fact. Oh, okay. So they're, they're just all deep in that, right? So, right. Derek Black is raised in this. Um, 11 years old, he, uh, teaches himself how to code and he creates a kids corner on the White Nationalist website. <sighs> or, the, I guess it wasn't White Nationalist yet. They hadn't rebranded. But yeah, on Stormfront. So they, basically, the whole movement is looking to Derek Black as, Going to be like the next great figure in their movement. Right, um, he's being raised as sort of like keys to the kingdom. You know, um, he hosted a white supremacist uh, radio show with his father. Mm-hmm. Just a lot of stuff like that.
0: Yeah, he's like he's like a white supremacist prodigy. Yeah, yeah, right? he's like the Bryce Harper or LeBron James, right. Of. Yeah. White supremacy of are sports things.
1: analogies and they're lost on me. Oh. But. <laughs> but I have heard of LeBron
0: James. So Bryce Harper was on the cover of Sports Illustrated okay. at the age of 16 oh, wow. for how well he played baseball. Okay. <clears throat> and now he's one of the highest paid baseball players in the entire world. So know. like right from the get-go. See, I've just learned some things. Yeah, <laughs> um,
1: But yeah, yeah, I mean that that's that's, same sort of narrative. Yeah, it's an out comparison, yeah. Right. So uh, when he was uh, maybe 14 or 15 uh, – so basically – he believed that uh, he was he was saving his family, right? Like um, that he was preserving white culture that um, that it was under attack, you know. So right, he was he was more focused on those aspects of of that movement, and um, so he was like, "Well, if we're going to recruit more people, we have to stop focusing on um, the hate message, uh, and we need to say." we need to talk about like how we're being victimized. So he came uh, up with the term white genocide. Oh man. As a teenager. And now, you know, like,
0: boy, he's got quite the bingo card. here, Right. Right. Yeah.
1: So these, uh, you know, congressmen and women are using it, you know, like right. it's, it's incredible. So, uh, basically he goes to, uh, college. His parents wanted to him to get a degree cause they felt like it would legitimize the movement. So he ends up going to like a liberal arts college cause it's what they could afford. <laughs> and, uh, this is the first time he's face-to-face with all the people he's been taught to hate.
0: First time? Yeah. Where did he grow up? Uh, I mean, David Duke, I associate with Louisiana. Yeah, I'm but
1: thinking on that. I feel like maybe Florida, but... It's got to be the... T-
0: I I know I'm yeah, stereotyping here. It's got to be the South, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Right, right. So... Uh,
1: he goes to this college. Nobody knows who he is. Also, it's the first time nobody's known who he was. Oh, yeah. Okay. Right. Yeah, so he um, dates a Jewish woman the first semester. Mm-hmm. Doesn't tell her about who he is or you know any did of. Did he know she was Jewish? Yeah. He okay. Did, yeah. All right. Uh, and he starts making friends uh, with like he made friends with a Latino guy, and uh, then somebody outed him. Hmm. You know the, the the relationship with the Jewish woman failed, but over the period of the the four years he was there, he had to come to terms with these are people that I like, right? Yeah. And it was like a slow evolution for him, uh, and eventually. <laughs> What's the term I looking for? He Renounced. denounced. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the the white supremacist movement, and so then people who were family members and had been his friends his whole life gave him death threats, stuff like that. Sure,
0: of course. He's yeah. a traitor now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And a race
1: traitor, no less. Oh boy. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. So now he uh, goes around the nation and, and speaks against white supremacy and stuff like that. So the thing that stuck out to me about that story. Was that, okay, so there are people, there's, there's your David Dukes, right? There are people who, who clearly understand that they are just creating a message of hate. Mm-hmm. That's their point. Like, those people just hate me for existing.
0: Right. Right. The cruelty is the point.
1: Yeah, right. But then there are other people who um, who are not in that extreme but can be drawn in by somebody like a David Duke. because If, if it's reframed as, you are being wronged in this way. Your family's being destroyed. We have to protect our family, right? And then suddenly, you're you're playing on people's um, more noble notions mm-hmm. and using that to manipulate them into being a part of a movement. So that's when you start to see the movement, uh, white supremacist movement, rebrand into things like alt right and sure. you know uh, whatever new things. You know, they just keep proud boys yeah. and all that kind of stuff. Oh, you know? Yeah, uh, but yeah, it's all the same. I mean, yeah. it's the same shit. Right. It's
0: just a, with a different coat of paint on it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah, but I, and I think that the, what they figured out in these last 20 years is uh if we don't come right out and say we hate everybody who isn't white, if we focus on we're just preserving our culture, we're just saving our family. Right. Then they can get a lot more people and they have. They've gotten a lot more people.
0: Sure. You know. Yeah, I mean, you you look at something, someone like Richard Spencer, who is just one of the most execrable people right. that's ever existed, but getting legitimized by the mainstream press for a while, yep. because he wore nice suits, yep, and, spoke well, and he was able to speak eloquently. Yeah. And, you know, he was like into bourbon and stuff, and so right. like he he managed to play act this mm-hmm. about as well as one could. Yeah, and so I mean, you're right, but when you drill down to exactly what he's espousing. It's the same as David Duke in the right, 80s.
1: Right, right. And so for me, I'm not trying to reach a Richard Spencer or David Duke. You know, no, of course I, not. I don't care about them. They don't care about me. No. right? But I think uh, for people who have, have been taken in by them, a big part of that is that they have not had an opportunity to see the humanity of the other people. Right? right. And so when you haven't seen the humanity of a group, it's easy to paint them with a broad brush. It's easy to believe that these evil caravans are coming, right, because you've never met anybody from that group. Right, Um, and you know,
0: and sometimes fun, fun, right? Like it's it's not only easy, but it can feel fun to do that too. Right, the rest of them, yeah, yeah. Where it's like, oh, we're not like that, right, right. And look at how clownish and ridiculous, you know, these people are. As you take something, blow it out of proportion, you have a laugh with the people who are like you, who are not like them.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I think there's a a bit of, um, you can feel noble, you can feel righteous, right, if you are standing against this evil group. Uh, air quotes I'm just mm-hmm. going to say that and not do it since people are listening <laughs> but the, this evil group you know Yeah, yeah. Uh, so for me growing up uh, in Atlanta I didn't know many if any openly gay
0: people oh interesting yeah and
1: so um, so I was vulnerable to stereotypes that took over a whole group right yeah. like because I had nothing to humanize that group um, as I've gotten older I've you know, uh, made friends with gay and trans people and being able to humanize those people suddenly made it harder for me to fall prey to these, uh, these biases and, and, and the things that, you know, kind of were sent my way. Right. But when I didn't know anybody from that group, it was easy for me to fall for it. Right. Yeah. And so, uh, I think that art is a powerful way to be able to show the humanity of other people. But furthermore, it's a way that if you haven't encountered somebody from a particular group, you can read their experience. You can get to know a character who has that. It can be fiction, it can be nonfiction, you know, but, uh, that is a way to, to recognize the humanity of somebody you haven't met.
0: Absolutely. And I want to, I want to make two points here that, or they might be questions. They might be points. I'm not sure here, but it's an adventure. Uh, regardless, um, I think what you're illustrating is, and it's got to be hard to describe the plot of a book without giving too much away. It's like you're trying to describe a magic trick, right? Right? Because <laughs> you you don't you want people to be intrigued enough, yeah. to want to see how it turns out, but you got to give them enough to where they're sort of hooked, yeah. right? So not to underline this too greatly, but what you're describing with uh, Derek Black mm-hmm. strikes. I mean, you're sort of drawing a parallel between that and the main character Gunslinger. That's right in Anguish Garden. Yeah. So I, I think that's a fascinating track to take, especially given, and we won't talk about it on Mike, but you were telling me something that you're kind of got in development too mm-hmm. that has a historical bent to it as well. Right, right. So, I mean, drawing from real life examples and then putting them into science fiction and fantasy. Yeah. Which reminds me of something we talked about on our first podcast huh. and it's your admiration for Rod Serling. Oh yeah. So, I mean, that's your guy, right? <laughs> that's is. your dude. He's a man. Yeah. <laughs> um. Because he used to make political statements all the time on The Twilight Zone. Yeah. But did it under – he would sort of Trojan horse it in.
1: Yeah. And, in fact, he had, he had been trying to make political statements for uh, 12 years or so uh, with before The Twilight Zone and was constantly getting censored. <laughs> right. And he would fight against it, and they called him the angry young man of television. And he was not a fan of sci-fi or fantasy at all. <laughs> And, but then he decided, well, maybe if I use sci-fi and fantasy, I can get these messages across. So he decides to do it, and he sits down with Ray Bradbury and's like, "How do I write sci-fi?"
0: Huh. <laughs> you know, well, way to have access to like the best of right. all time, right? I mean, seriously,
1: but it's pretty crazy because the uh, the Twilight Zone so much defi- defines how people approach sci-fi and fantasy now. And it came from a person who was not a fan of those (laughs) genres, you know.
0: Well, I think it's useful sometimes reframing your own genre from someone who's not in it. Yeah, which is one of the things, just from a business perspective, I do with companies. Okay, because I'll go in and you know they'll be like, "We want to do this in our PR program or our brand or whatever," and I'm like, "Okay, well, you say you want to do this, but your brand is actually telling people this, and they go." Oh yeah, those don't line up. So you need someone to sort of look at it from the outside in, right, to recontextualize it and turn it into something that it needs to be. Yeah. So Yeah. Yeah, no, I think I think that's a really cool device to get people to think about it and it always this is a personal pet peeve of mine too mm-hmm. because I have a master's degree in communication focused in media studies. Okay. I used to have friends that would sort of dismiss that, you Hmm. know, because I would have like colleagues writing their master's thesis about the Spider-Man movies okay, or, you know, whatever. I wrote mine about punk rock. Okay. And they're like, this is all so pointless. Like, what are you even doing? I go, dude, if you can understand this and the way it influences the world, Hmm. you will understand everything. Hmm. And I I firmly believe that. Like people want to dismiss pop culture. Yeah. Yet it's such uh, a central part of everyone's lives. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I think um, having like pop culture touch tones allows people to process things in ways that they might not if you hit them head on with it. You right.
0: Know? Yeah, no, if if you're a frying pan to the face, Right. right you're going to just tune it out. Yeah. You know, I mean, how much do we, especially we're in presidential campaign season, you hear it every day. Right. So it's easy to go, okay, that's just political noise. But if it sort of comes at you from an oblique angle, yeah. it's much more exciting.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And also, I think just uh, just a human nature thing. Like, if I um, if I am challenging to live a different kind of, like, to make a different decision about something in your life, and I start off like, "You need to do this," <laughs> right? Then immediately, you know, like the the response is sort of defensive, right? Yeah. Uh, but if you go like the oh, I don't know, the Jesus Christ route, like the the parable, right? Mm-hmm. Like there was a person who did such and such, such and such, such and such. I mean, he would end it with like, "And that person is you," kind of, you know. But <laughs> But, uh, but I do think just uh, being what, able to... By
0: the way, what you were describing is the exact construction of a Sesame Street book called There's a Monster <laughs> at the End of This Book. Really? Yeah, it's Grover, and he's afraid of the monster at the end of this book. Hmm. And so kids are reading it; they're really nervous. They're kind of like, "Oh gosh, you know, like, what is this monster?" The last page is a mirror. Wow! Right? So that's cool. And so everyone—spoiler alert—for all of you who haven't read (laughs) (laughs) Grover's, there's a monster at the end of this book. But like, it's a great thing for kids. Like, hey, you don't necessarily need to be afraid. We're not as different from each other as as you think we are. Yeah. So
1: yeah, that's a beautiful thing, right? To be able to like introduce the principle, pull it out of the context where it feels emotionally charged and then allow people to, to consider, you know, like, Hmm. Am I, do I do this? Yeah. You know?
0: Yeah. They'll, they'll apply what they've just read and been entertained by. And they'll go, that's kind of similar to the way to my relationship with such and such.
1: Yeah. There was a woman who read the burning metronome and she was like, man, comic books ain't supposed to be making me think (laughs) about my life. You know? (laughs) I was like, well, yeah. That's well, what I'm
0: doing. <laughs> it, like, well, I mean, it's cool because you definitely have something to say, but you're also in the business of entertainment. Right. And so the fact that you get to scratch both itches, yeah. it's got to be very satisfying.
1: Yeah, yeah, because I, actually I, I want it to be entertaining first, right? Like, Yeah. Uh, because otherwise I should just write a sermon or uh, give a speech, you know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like <laughs> uh, I I want people to, to want to want to go on this journey yeah. with the characters that I create.
0: Well, like, it's funny because... In when you launched this, mm-hmm. and the first article I read about it, like I said, was on Christmas Eve. Yeah, you posted on Christmas Day. Mm-hmm. You got death threats. Yep, yep. Which first on for Christmas you, right? Day. <laughs> yeah, it yeah. was a first. Merry Christmas right. to you. I was like,
1: be with <laughs> your family. Why are you?
0: <laughs> <laughs> Why are you trolling? Right. This comic book author. Yeah. On Christmas. Uh,
1: yeah. Uh So this is on Instagram. And it's pretty, pretty clear that they didn't even read the article. They just read the headline and saw my picture. Yeah,
0: what was the headline?
1: It was a cartoonist uh, tackles white supremacy with new graphic novel. Yeah. And that was enough. (laughs) Yeah. It was a Colorado (laughs) Sun article. And uh, yeah, yeah. They posted like all these things about like comic garters should die. And when the coming civil war happens, guess who I'm coming after and that kind of stuff. Oh, God. And of course, it's an anonymous account. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's how it goes. You're
0: getting trolled by the Twitter egg, right? Yeah, right. Yeah.
1: So, uh, But it was interesting, man. You know, like I've done stuff before where I I guess I thought that I would receive more kind of opposition. Mm-hmm. Um, and it hasn't happened up to this point. So it was really interesting to get death threats for something that isn't even out yet,
0: you know. Um, how did that make you – this is – and yeah. I'm, I'm going to dig into this. But how did that make you feel? Like what was your initial reaction? Were you scared? Were you like – this guy's anonymous. Did yeah. did you slough it off? Like, how long did it live with you?
1: Uh, at least a few days. It was definitely demoralizing, right? Uh, certainly. Yeah, because so I'm, I'm with family um, in another state. Um, you know, like my little niece talking to her, and then I look at my phone, and I'm like, what the, what? Yeah. And it took a moment to process it, you know? And, yeah, it was, um, you know, there... They're, they're opposing feelings, right? So, like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, growing up in Atlanta, you know, I was around enough people who, like, wanted to fight me and stuff like that. That that kind of thing I'm used to meeting, right? Okay. But this uh, sort of random, unidentified thing in the, in the days of uh, mass shootings, and usually those are angry uh, white nationalists
0: a lot of times, you know? Demographically, it's yeah. been more them than anyone else. Yeah.
1: So for somebody to uh, feel like, okay— Somebody gave me death threats for doing an allegory about white supremacy. They fit in that demographic, right? Certainly. <laughs> so, uh, And then when I looked at the person's page, uh, they posted stuff about Colorado. So it wasn't just like some person on the internet, somebody in the state. Right, yeah. Yeah, so all of that was a lot. You know, it was a lot. I met with uh, – so I posted about it on, on Facebook because I find that – People who are abusive and manipulative use secrecy. Like they try to, if if they can shame you, right. then they have more power over you, right? Right. So I was like, if you're gonna post that publicly, then I'm gonna repost it publicly. Mm. <laughs> you know?
0: Yeah. Let's 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 drag you out into the sunlight. Yeah. Yeah. And and let's see if you have the gusto that you have. Right. In the light of day.
1: Yeah. Right. And um, uh, I haven't heard anything from that person since then. But that's good. Yeah. Have you
0: gotten anything else?
1: No. No. Thankfully, but- that's good. You know, I think, uh, but it had the effect of sort of coalescing people behind this book. Like, people really wanted to support it now, you know. And I think people might have supported it before, but it just added a different kind of zeal. And then, you know, I had to think about in context. All right. So, you know, I'm living in this day and age, but black artists um, in the 50s, 40s, 60s, you know, like. Yeah. Yeah. they have a, they were, they were functioning under very present danger of like lynching.
0: Certainly. Yeah. yeah and just, like uh, yeah. Just getting like kidnapped or beaten yeah. just in broad daylight. Yeah. You know, you, you hear stories about the Rat Pack and Sinatra and Dean Martin and all yeah. the other guys having to be with Sammy all the time mm-hmm. and like they'd have to escort him into the clubs that they were in yeah. because he wasn't allowed in otherwise.
1: Yeah. Or like uh, Hattie McDaniel, uh, right. won uh Oscar for gone with the wind, which in I've a never different seen. room. <laughs> yeah. wasn't allowed into the, into the ceremony. Uh, I've never seen that movie. I'm never going to see that movie, I've but not, I haven't seen it, either. <laughs> but I uh, grown up in Atlanta. It was like, it was a legacy, you know? Oh, certainly. Yeah. Uh, at least for white people in Atlanta, but, uh, <laughs> But yeah, you know, so all of that. So I had to think about, okay, so these people faced a different kind of open hostility and danger, and um, and they didn't stop. Right. Yeah. So like, you know, am I going to stop? And no, no, I'm not going to stop. You Good. Know? You know, I hate to say this, but like, if it was res- if me creating art that challenges people resulted in something happening to me, uh, it would it would be worth it. You know.
0: Interesting and i mean what a what a strange piece of mental calculus you have to do
1: right for a comic book right
0: <laughs> <laughs> again but that that's interesting because that is kind of the opposite of what we just talked about people want to dismiss pop culture yeah right yeah but and you're you're sort of playing it down a little bit there mm-hmm. you know it's like it's just a comic book right right but it's also not just a comic <laughs> right, book right like, obviously cuz clearly yeah um, <clears throat> clearly, you know, even just the act of you creating it mm-hmm. has pissed someone off so much that, and I, I don't know the de- the degree to which this was an empty threat or not. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, some people are will just spout off. Right. And, right. Um, or you know, you don't know if this guy is dangerously unhinged. Yeah. But the fact that someone would write that
1: mm-hmm.
0: on the internet, where things are written in ink. Right. Right. Is, I mean, unnerving. Did you end up reporting that or?
1: Yeah. Uh so I have a friend and attorney who uh who's helped me out with that. But so far uh gone first hasn't really been interested in doing anything.
0: Right. So well I'll I'll tell you a personal story. I um and I don't want to give too much away here because mm-hmm. it's not gonna be that much that long a walk. But I was doing uh a thing on Reddit for one of my clients. Okay. And it was an ask me anything. Yeah. Um and Went really – it was smooth. It was really easy. It was great. Client loved it. The next day, someone got on there and post and threatened to go into their office and shoot this person and then themselves. Wow. um, Because they were upset over some perceived slight that this person or this department or this company or whatever did. Okay. And – I, I felt really bad about it. We reported it to law enforcement. I contacted Reddit, you know, did all that. Uh-huh. Nothing ultimately came of it. And I talked to her later. She goes, oh, yeah, that's not my first death threat. I get a bunch of them. Hmm. And she's like, the security in this building is fine. And I go, what a weird state to live in. Yeah. Like, And, and I don't mean Colorado, obviously. Yeah. But like a weird state of mind to live in where that is just part of the cost of doing business.
1: Yeah. It's It's
0: sad and amazing. It's frightening. Yeah.
1: Yeah. That, yeah, that you even have to think about that. Like after I sort of made it public, people reached out to me who had also gotten death threats. One of them is a, a guy I knew when I was a teenager who's a former pastor. He's a preacher. He's mm-hmm. a white dude who talks about uh, issues of race. And he told me he was getting death threats and people were threatening his wife and children and stuff like that. Oh. And another is a black activist who kind of just... Met with me and gave me his, his experience with it and his um, his way of dealing with it. You know, and uh, it was amazing to hear like how often people get that kind of like people get that threats. That's a crazy thing.
0: Yeah, it's it's not something I can relate to. It's never happened to me. Yeah. Um. I mean, I've never. I haven't done shows that I think generate a great deal of controversy. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, it was something of. When I told people I did this, they they took it strange, and it like I interviewed um, a Muslim imam, okay, right, yeah, uh, right up, uh, um, right up at the Masjid Taqwa on Northeast Park Hill, and so he, uh, I'm blanking on his name, Ali, Imam Ali. I was introduced to him through a Jewish rabbi. Okay. And so, but people are like, wow, you went and did that? I go, what? yeah, is yeah. that weird? Like, why is that weird? Mm. And so I would kind of push them on that. Right. Like, why is that weird? Like, why wouldn't I go and meet this man who is a leader of faith right. for a community here in Denver? Right. Um, but it's almost like they never even thought to like go and talk to someone like that. Yeah. And it's like, the more that you can do that, the, more, the less scary we all become, which yeah, is exactly your right. point.
1: The humanity, right.
0: Right. And so I learned so much about the Muslim faith hmm. and he was, uh, he was great friends with Muhammad Ali. So he had amazing stories about wow. Muhammad Ali too. That's cool. Yeah. Um, and, uh, it was, it was one of my favorite episodes that I did because I learned a lot because yes. I hadn't spent any time in that community. I didn't know hardly anything about it.
1: Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean so since most people are not gonna do that, then the way you get it to them is through art right. and television and <laughs> bring them out into Muhammad, right? <laughs> right? Right,
0: right, right. <laughs> so to speak. Yeah. 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 Wow. Um so <clears throat> this is this is an unfair question for you. I'm just gonna tell you that up front. Okay. But as a hetero white, cisgendered dude, dude. right? What are the things, and I I think people are always interested in this, and this is why I told you it's unfair. Okay. Because, you know, you are not the spokesman for everyone. Yeah. Right? You're about one person, so answer this any way you want. Okay. But if, if we can undo some of these notions of white supremacy and division and hate and the other, Mm -hmm. um, someone who kind of is in the role in the costume of holding the keys to the stadium. Yeah. Right. Yeah. How do I help that cause? Mm-hmm. You know, um, practical things, big picture things, even just small things. I mean, I know on this show, I want to talk to as many different people as, as I can. Right. On. I talked at Denver Film Festival to the filmmakers of a film called Growing Up Koi. Okay. Which was all about Koi Mathis who was transgendered at eight years old and went through the court system. This was down in like fountain Colorado, just South of Colorado Springs about which bathroom she's going to go into. Right. Right. Always comes down to the bathroom. Yeah. But he came into that very defensive. I'm like, look, no, I'm not here to do a hit piece on you. I want to hand the mic over, like tell the story. Right. So, I mean, that's one thing that I'm happy about what I'm doing. I could probably do more of it. Mm hmm. But from your perspective, is there anything off the top of your head where if someone's listening to this, like, how do I make a difference in a positive way?
1: Yeah. You know, one of the things that's been useful to me, uh, I've recently, I feel like in the last three or four years, seen white people saying that racism is a white problem Hmm. and that white people have to contend with each other on it. Interesting. Um, Also, you know, like I've seen male activists say that sexism is a male problem. And that we have to hold each other accountable. It's not, it's not women's responsibility to teach us how to treat them like human beings. Like, we're the ones who are doing it, right? So why are we putting it on the victims to fix it?
0: Right. Um, yeah, yeah, it's like that old thing, you know, be conscious about how you're raising your girls. Right. No, fuck that. Right. Be conscious about how you're raising your boys. Yes. Yeah. Right.
1: Yeah. So I think, um, white, white people who are, are seeking ways to, um, sort of make a difference. It is to hold other white people accountable, mm. you know. And uh, I, you know, I've been challenged that. Like the the only comparison I have in my own life is being male and straight, and right. um, thinking about how I um how I show up in women's lives, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, I I remember just kind of trying something out, you know, trying to like hold somebody accountable. So uh, there was a time I was walking downtown, and there was a there was this dude who was probably fifties, kind of like. Uh, Sort of drunk, and uh, as women walked by, like you know, like he would, he would, he was standing like near the crosswalk, so if they had to stop to cross, he like, "Hey, girl, you know, blah blah blah," oh, like, yeah. that kind of stuff, right? Uh, and he was clearly making them uncomfortable, but couldn't tell, and I, you know, like like afraid a little,
0: you know. Yeah. And so. Uh, well, yeah, because if a guy is drunk, right, you know, women have seen that unfold, right, right. Before yeah, they, and, they, they know what's possible.
1: Yeah. The stakes are much higher for them in that interaction. Certainly. So, um, so I was like, Hey man, you just out here scaring people. He got mad at me, but, but he stopped, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, I'm just trying to do my thing, man. Why you out? you know, like that kind of
0: thing. <laughs> yeah. But, like, what are you a cop? Right. <laughs> right. But
1: just saying it like that, right. Like, not like, what are you doing? Or trying to explain things to him, just holding him accountable, just letting him know That somebody is paying attention to what you're doing. Yeah, totally. uh, Was enough to make him like back up and stop doing
0: it. Yeah, you're not going to do this scot free. Yeah. It reminds, yeah, it reminds me of with one of my friends several years ago. He's like, you know, when I refer to something as gay, Mm -hmm. right? I don't mean, you know, I'm not like, I'm not biased against gay people. I have a ton of gay friends. You can picture how this conversation's unfolding, right? right? And I go, look, man, I know you don't have hate in your heart and I know you have gay friends, Mm -hmm. but here's the thing. Um, when I, and I've, I heard this and I can't remember where I, I want to say it was even like Todd Glass on a podcast or you know, something like inconsequential.
1: See, you could freestyle <laughs> Todd Glass on a podcast.
0: Yeah. And plus, like, <laughs> I mean, that's the shit everyone wants to hear, right? <laughs> Me talking about comedians on podcasts. Like, right. that's great freestyle, isn't it? <laughs> right. So, but he said every time. You know, I'll hear someone be like, "Oh, who's that fag?" Right? Mm-hmm. Or you know, "Oh, that TV show's gay." Yeah. He's like, "I die a little bit inside huh. because I know that I am lesser." Like it, it, and he's like, "Right, wrong, or indifferent, I associate when they use that as a pejorative term. Yeah, I associate that with myself, and it, it just it makes me wither and want to die inside. Right. And I told him that he goes, "Oh man, like I'd never thought of it that way." Mm-hmm. I go, "Well, yeah, of course not." Like. Mm-hmm. You know, because a
1: thousand cuts kind of
0: thing. Yeah. You know, your own motivations, Yeah, but I think it's probably worthwhile for you to find another word hmm. if, you know, you can not contribute to that. And if we can beat that back, right. you know, we're all a little bit better for it. Hmm. So what you said really resonates with me because, yeah, I mean, I wasn't afraid to call him out there. It was uncomfortable. Yeah. You know, right. like you don't want to do that. Right. That's, but I think ultimately we're better for it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that's the way we grow as people. It's interesting you said that. I was uh, so my my most recent what I miss strip. Yeah, uh, was uh, so that you know the context. Uh, the,
0: the- oh, is this about the Polish jokes? Yeah, I yeah I read oh, this one. Right? This okay. is really good. Yeah, oh,
1: cool. Yeah, so this, you know the setup is basically the the story. The comic is a a white woman in her fifties who's been in a coma for thirty years, and a young black neighbor who's in his twenties, and their neighbors and friends. Uh, because she emotionally and spiritually still believes she's in her 20s. But, right. uh, yeah. So they talk about uh, it, it provides a good framing device for them to have discussions about society, et cetera. So in this particular one, uh, she asks, have we ever talked about the N-word? And uh, he says, I don't understand why black people can't just have something to ourselves, and tells a story about going to dinner with uh, some Polish friends and they make they made a whole bunch of Polish jokes at the dinner, and everybody laughed, and it was great. But that didn't make him think that he could later go out and approach other Polish people and start telling Polish jokes. Right. Like it was he was content to let them have their thing. And
0: um, yeah, it's not his place to co opt that.
1: Right, right. And I, I think it's different when it comes to to black people because you know we are considered like cool and uh, like this commodity, right? Like uh, yeah. the world loves black culture. Uh, but it doesn't translate into a love for black people usually. Right. Right. So like, uh, it feels cool to say the N word. It feels cool to, you know, dress black or talk black or demonstrably black, you know, these things. Um, but I, I, you know, there's that, there's also Chris rock once said that, uh, white men in this country have never been told they couldn't do anything.
0: <laughs> right. And, and that's what
1: he feels like the big the stuff about the N-word, you know, is. That's
0: incredibly insightful. Huh. Yeah. 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 White dudes have never been told no right. for anything. Right. right.
1: And so it's a really interesting thing because nobody's craving to tell Polish jokes in that. I mean, you know, there, there are people who do. sure, But people aren't telling it to be cool. They're not t- saying it like as a, a way to make themselves feel more powerful or anything like that, you know? Right. Um, and there's all of that that goes into, um, when people co-op aspects of black culture. Yeah. And it's a really interesting thing because, um, so like I can go to Boulder or something. Right. Mm -hmm. And, uh, which is mostly white. Oh yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Famously. And, uh,
0: Hey, I went to school in Fort Collins. Oh, okay. oh right. <laughs> uh, I mean, that, that makes Boulder look like the United Nations by comparison.
1: <laughs> I met a girl <laughs> on a dance floor years ago who was from Fort Collins, and she was like, fo co, fo show. <laughs> I was like, really? It was a white girl. But <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> Spectacular. Yes.
1: Anyway, uh, I, I distinctly remember walking into a coffee shop in Boulder uh, maybe seven years ago. And... uh and it was all sort of like uh granola, hippie ish mm-hmm. white people and they all just like they all just held their breath at once. It was like they sucked all the breath out of and they're like a black guy right? Right. Uh and if I were an insecure dude, that would be really appealing to me, right? Sure. Because I'm an instant celebrity. These people know nothing about me. Like all the women are suddenly attracted to me, all the guys are not even noticing that their girlfriends are flirting with me because they're like, Oh, he's a cool black dude. Oh, yeah. You know, I want to learn about this cool. Yeah, right.
0: Maybe I can have him on my diversity bingo checklist. <laughs> right. You know, like I can finally get the black guy square. Right. Right. right? Yeah. Uh,
1: and, and, and you hit on it exactly because it, it is just as dehumanizing. Like it's, it's the, it's the the opposite side of the racism coin, right? Like mm-hmm. um, one side they're treating you like shit uh-huh. on the other side, they're treating you like a celebrity. But both sides are, you're not a human being. You're just an action figure to collect.
0: Right. Yeah. You're, you're like a mascot. Mm -hmm. Right. It's, uh, it's like Roger Ebert used to talk about when he would review films. So many films have the magical negro in them. Yeah. You know, I'm sure you're familiar with that trope. Yep. And the movie that comes to mind right now is like the legend of Bagger Vance. Bagger Vance. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So, uh, there's a, there's a Netflix
1: show, uh, this black comedy troupe. I think there's seven or eight members. It's called the Astronomy Club. Mm hmm. They're so funny. They're, they're young, really funny, all black. And they did one sketch, which was uh, Magical Negro Rehab. Oh, gosh. And then they brought in, like, all these characters, like Whoopi Goldberg's character from Ghost, <laughs> uh, the the brother from uh, Green Mile. I tried to oh, call yeah. it back, boss, that guy.
0: <laughs> yeah, Michael Clark Duncan. Yeah,
1: yes, and then they brought in uh, at least two Morgan Freeman characters. <laughs> totally. Got to be Shawshank
0: is and one of them. Drive,
1: yeah, and Driving Miss Daisy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so like, and it was just, it was really insightful and funny, but yeah, that's the thing, right? Like, so, you know, I think, um, but all of that again, comes down to not recognizing the humanity of a person.
0: Right. And that's why representation matters too. Yeah. Yeah. Because I mean, these folks in this coffee shop, and I'm not necessarily going to cast aspersions on them, right? but you know, they, you see enough magical Negro in your life and one wanders in, right. You go, oh hosanna! <laughs> right. Finally, right? right. And I, yeah, I don't think they were well, ill intentioned. No, right? no, like but it was,
1: you know. But it definitely wasn't like they were interested in me as a person. The reason I walked in, in fact, is that uh, that was a place that hosted uh, that book music gigs, and I'd been emailing and calling for months, and uh, I sent like samples of the music, I sent press releases, right. et cetera. No response. Then I walk in, and the guy who books is there, and he's like, "Cool black dude. Okay, when can you play?" certainly right? You know. Yeah. And it's like you don't even know what my music is. Alright, but I'm gonna take the gig, you know. Uh, well sure. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean there are times where you can use that to your advantage. Yeah. I mean, uh,
1: it exists. Uh do people curse on this podcast? Oh yeah. Right? I've okay. I've already
0: cursed like nine times.
1: <laughs> okay. <laughs> so this is a this is an excellent story, uh just an example of this. So I was in uh I was in Prague. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if I told this last time.
0: No, no. Um, You mentioned that you went to Prague, okay. which was really cool. And no, you know what? We talked about this when we were doing a meeting for the Denver Podcast Network.
1: Oh, okay. Which
0: no longer exists. But I don't know. I don't remember or know where this story is going. So okay, cool. Keep going.
1: So I, I I got to Prague on a Friday night. I was staying in this hostel called the Mosaic Party Hostel, mm-hmm. which was aptly named as fuck because <laughs> there was a dance floor on the bottom, on like on uh, the bottom level. So and a party was going on, right? People were dancing. So I walk in to check in and people are just like dancing, just sth, sth, sth. <laughs> and I was like, Well, I'm gonna go dance, right? Sure. So I've been in this country for twenty minutes, right? <laughs> uh and I walk down to the dance floor and um there are three bachelorette parties happening.
0: Oh, at the same time. Yeah. Good God.
1: Yeah. So one girl from one of the bachelorette parties comes over and is like, Hey, you need to come uh, dance with us, our uh, friends, and stuff like that, right? And uh, they were all white, mm-hmm. which is important to the story. And so I didn't know anybody, I was by myself. So I was like, Sure, you know. So I go over and, you know, I kind of meet the bride and the bride to be. And it's, you know, it's kind of weird. So I was like, eh, whatever. I walk away. I get approached by two other representatives from the other two bachelorette parties. They want to, like, take a picture and stuff like that. And I was like, this is weird. So then, uh, so I get away from all of them. And then a girl from the first bachelor party comes over. And she points to the bride-to-be. And she says, I can set you up, but it's according to your game. What? And so I was like, didn't you say she's getting married in two weeks? She says, yes, but you are black and you are American. You are fantasy. Oh, jeez. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. And so I was like, uh, what am I, the black dick fairy? Yeah. And I said that, and the she left me alone, which is great because I did not know the sarcasm would translate across. <laughs> but it did. Made her leave me alone. Holy shit! But uh, but that is exactly what I'm talking about, right? Like, yeah, they they had no idea who I was. It was just I was this commodity, right? right? And uh, like you know, so like yeah, you know, like I said, if I were insecure, that would be great, right? Or sure. if, if I uh, were yeah, like, if you
0: sought a lot of external validation, <laughs> yes, you know, yeah. just where you know, it's like, look how cool I am, right? You could get that all the time, yeah. yeah. But it's
1: a it's a it's a it's a setup though, because when people exalt you like that, they uh, almost that that coin can that coin can flip immediately as soon as they're displeased with something you say or do. Yeah, okay, you're out. Yeah, suddenly you're being called pejorative, inward, cetera, uh-huh. You know, because you never were a human being to them. Uh, I think it's very similar, particularly in a club setting, it's very similar to what, like, uh, a really attractive woman faces. Mm-hmm. You know, like, people immediately wanting her attention and making these promises and, you know, like... Yeah. But it has nothing to do with her as a person.
0: Well, it reminds me of something Patton Oswald said about uh, gay people, where in every single movie, they are these, like, magical, fun quip machines. Yes. Right? Yes. You know, they... they uh they, they just have this witty rejoinder for everything. They're always there. And up until recently, they were largely non-sexualized. To right. It, right. Right. That's a good so, point. So you're denying them an element of their humanity yeah. just in service of you know whatever it is you're trying to tell. They become uh, a part of the landscape mm-hmm. rather than a fully realized person. Yeah. Which I think it's interesting as we sit here that Parasite just won all those awards at the Oscars. Right. Representation matters. Yeah. You know? Yeah.
1: So... Well, so yeah, so this is all
0: <laughs> very, very
1: interesting. I was just thinking about uh how all of that kind of feeds into what what it is I'm trying to do with the anguish garden, yeah, the book, you know, and I think um, because Rod Serling is a strong influence, it's actually easy for me to explain the context of a book because that's not the story, right, like the alien war is not the story, oh, you know? totally yeah yeah, it's like the setup, and mm-hmm. then you get to see you know um Zola have to start face some truths of. You know, are these people actually a threat? What is Anguish Garden? Why are they being put there?
0: Totally. You know,
1: it. You know, and it's kind of like the uh, the border wall and the, the families being separated. Like, it kind of touches on all of those themes. I think this, there's this idea, like, okay, so the people in the coffee shop in Boulder, like I was saying, they weren't ill-intentioned, right? Right. So they might feel like, hey, I just had this interaction with this cool black dude. I just met a cool black dude, you know? <laughs> right. Um, and I think that's a place where they feel like they're doing something benevolent. And if they do some research and learn some, they might come to realize, oh, actually, that wasn't benevolent, mm-hmm. you know, because I wasn't actually seeing them as a person. Right. And so I I really like this exploring the idea of thinking you're the hero of a story and then kind of learning, oh, wait, I'm actually doing villainous things. Right. And then the decision becomes, what do I do? I change you know? Yeah. Or do I stay on the villainous path, and I, that's what Zola's going to have to face?
0: Okay. How much of the war is actually featured in this? Any?
1: No. Yes. After the
0: war, so it's kind of like Reservoir Dogs. Oh yeah. Where? Oh yeah. yeah. It's, it's a movie about a diamond heist, right? But you don't see any of the diamond heist. Yeah. Right.
1: Know? But that diamond heist sets the context for all of the conversations. Exactly. On the, yeah. A,
0: yeah. That's a good comparison. And yeah. and I kind of love that too because I think in comic books it's got to be tempting to do like an origin story right yeah i kind of prefer us to come in like in medias res right you know yeah. where i'm not even sure i said that right but because origin stories kind of follow a predictable structure right. and format whereas it's like no no this alien war happened and now yeah. we're all dealing with it you kind of drop people in the deep end that way
1: yeah i think it's more interesting man i mean there's that big uh show don't tell principle in writing, absolutely right so like uh
0: and origin stories have a lot of exposition, yeah. right? There's a yes. lot of telling.
1: And exposition is a tricky thing, right? Like, uh, I think at its worst, it's uh two people driving in a car in a zombie movie, <laughs> and somebody just does an exposition dump, and they're like, the zombies were creative in a secret government lab, and then the only yeah. way that you can kill them is by, you know, like that kind of but stuff, totally. right? Uh But I think the, the best way is you have two characters who are talking, and you're just learning things about them without them telling you.
0: Yeah, exactly. You
1: know, Um so like... uh I like the flash CW show sometimes <laughs> uh, when I saw so the, the first comic book I ever read was the flash. So I have like a very like, uh you know, connected place mm-hmm. to that character. So I watched the first couple seasons of it and I, I rolled my eyes at least twice an episode and around <laughs> season three, I was like, I don't have to do this to myself anymore. And I stopped watching it. Right?
0: <laughs> I did the same thing with the walking dead. <laughs> right on. Yeah. Uh,
1: and, then, actually, in season four, I came back, and it was fantastic. Oh, great. Okay. Yeah, the writer's room had completely changed. Nice. Uh, but but part of why I was rolling my eyes, I realized, was that all of those CW shows, for the most part, are characters telling you how they feel. Hmm. So, like, uh, Barry Allen, he's having, you know, he's supposed to go save somebody, but he has to stop and be like, Iris, I think that I'm feeling upset because, you know, uh, Joe didn't really treat me the way that I thought that, you know, like, and he's telling you, right? <laughs> People don't do that so much in real life. I right? know. Right, and so like uh, if you watch uh, something like The Wire or Ozark on Netflix, or totally, yeah, those are things where um, you just see people, and either through their acting or through the writing and circumstances, you can you can feel what they feel. Exactly, exactly. But they're not stopping and being like, "I just feel demoralized," <laughs> but I think I'm just jealous because you know, like that kind of. It stuff.
0: reminds me of Futurama. It's like you can't fry. You can't have characters just announce how they feel. <laughs> that makes me feel angry.
1: <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Right, and that's a big thing. So uh, so I think uh, what you're saying about the origin story, it's kind of the same thing, right? If you throw people in uh, and then they just get to go through an experience, like for me, I try to find like what is an interesting moment to begin. Like in any book that I'm writing, any graphic novel, it's like, why do people care about this character unless right. I give them a reason? And I, as an example, I really take the first Iron Man as a really good example. Mm. So the first Iron Man movie, uh, you know, begins with, Tony Stark in that uh, Humvee with the soldiers, right? And he's yeah. he's being Robert Downey Jr. He's making everybody laugh, right? Now think about it. This character in this movie is a weapons dealer. He's arrogant. He's selfish. He's a billionaire. So there's every reason to hate this character, yeah. right? So they had to figure out, how are we going to make <laughs> us like this character? So it starts off with him joking around, making everybody laugh. And then he gets hit, hit by like a landmine or something. Yeah. And then he's a prisoner of war and being tortured for like the first 20 minutes or so of the movie. Right. right so now we love this dude right <laughs> totally and and we followed him for like 11 years or however long it's been right yeah. and so but that they did a really good job and and, and it, now we, and we've followed this character's evolution through all these movies but if they had failed to make us care about him yeah the marvel cinematic
0: universe wouldn't even exist totally it's like uh the andrew garfield spider-man movies, yeah. huh where no one cared about yeah those really yeah. because I, I don't think they did a great job with that yeah um, but my to your point my favorite like opening scene in a movie one of them is Cabin in the Woods huh because you've seen that right i have
1: but i don't remember it opening
0: okay the opening is uh Bradley Whitford and Richard Jenkins okay basically just on this motorized cart driving through this factory yeah talking about like home improvement projects and how things are going in stockholm right. and in you know tokyo and you're like what the hell is happening? I, th- <laughs> I thought this was a horror movie uh, about a bunch of teenagers. Yeah, and so you're sort of there and you're disoriented, and then like there's a hard cut and we go immediately to the teenagers. Right. And you're like, okay, those guys are going to be important, but I'm not sure why hmm. yet. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's compelling enough, and like the dialogue is zippy enough, and it's, right. you know it's fun enough to where you get it. But it's sort of like the unobvious choice of how you open that movie. Yeah. Given yes. the way the movie unfolds. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it, it it can't open any other way, but the temptation would have been to open it, you know, any other way. <laughs> right. Right.
1: Right. And I think it's important as a as a writer to think about like, yeah, why? What, what what reason am I giving people to care enough to follow these characters through this whole story? Right. You know.
0: Perfect. All right. Well, I think we need to wrap up. So you've got a Kickstarter going. Yeah. I'm going to link to that first. Uh, so after we record this. Don't worry, I'll link to it a bunch. But uh, it'll be in the companion blog piece to this show as well as in the show notes. So uh, give it to us here. Uh, where can we find you? Where Anything you want to plug right now. Yeah. The floor is yours.
1: Thank you. Uh, so, yes, the Anguish Garden Kickstarter is going to April 1st. Uh, April Fool's Day. I didn't pick that on purpose. It just <laughs> kind of happened. but uh it's about half funded uh, as of this recording and there are a lot of cool rewards there's a dude who's making action figures of the characters oh wow so that's a kickstarter reward you can get a lot of cool art and stuff like that at a certain level you can be drawn as a background character in the book nice so um yeah so i'm, I'm excited about it man like and i really want to get this book made and the artists who are working on it with me are so talented and so good and i, I just really want to quickly say their names uh kevin Cameron's doing layouts Dalen Ogden is doing the pencil and ink art. And then Sarah Menzel-Trappel is doing the color. Um, And there's a seven-page preview that you can see on the Kickstarter. Like, the art is beautiful. I love it. It makes me so happy. They were the people who I was thinking of when I wrote it. And uh, after I wrote it, I pitched it to all of them, and I got all of them. They all signed on. It was incredible. Amazing. Yeah, and then there's a guy, Carl Correll, who's doing a musical score for the book. And he is... uh, he has a record label called Phaser Records. He's a DJ and producer and musician, and he travels all over the country and performs. And he uh, played me something, and it's so cool. <laughs> nice. It's so cool. So, uh, yeah, so please help me make that book a reality, if for no other reason than to tell the, the white supremacist dude who gave me death threats to fuck you. you know? <laughs> That's right. Uh, okay, so then uh, what I miss is on the Colorado Sun, um, Colorado Sun's website. So it's coloradosun.com on the opinion section comics you can read my weekly comic there it's called what i miss uh also motherfucker in a cape which people always have trouble finding because i used asterisks after the f yeah. <laughs> uh, i didn't i didn't think that when i made it but uh but if you just google mother space f asterisk asterisk it should come up yeah or google it. my name it'll come up yeah there you go yeah our alan brooks um but that's still happening, and I've had a lot of really good guests on and stuff like that. It's been a lot of fun. Bernie Metronome, you can go dot BernieMetronome.com to find that. And that might be all the stuff right now that I can talk about.
0: Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know what? When you get more stuff going, <laughs> come yeah. back here. We'll do it again. Cool. Because, yeah, you are one of my favorite people to talk to. I think you and I have a very similar sensibility about the way we view particularly pop culture. Yeah, I agree. And it's place in the world. So this is a pleasure. I wish you nothing but continued success, Alan. Yeah, thank you so much, John. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me out here. Thanks, man. And that wraps up episode 241 of the John of All Trades podcast with Alan Brooks. It was an enormous pleasure. Thank you for coming back. Thank you for talking with me. I felt like we had a great chat, and I cannot wait. See how this book turns out. I'm getting a copy because I donated to the Kickstarter. You should do the same. You'll find links to it on a companion blog piece on john of alltrades.us or in the show notes if you're listening to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or any other podcatcher. While you're there, hit that subscribe button. Brand new episodes will come directly to you. Leave us a rating, leave us a review, that helps with visibility. Let's pay some bills. Four degrees is our sponsor, the number four D-E-G-R-E.es. No matter what you're doing online you're building a campaign, you're building a coalition, you're promoting a good, a product, or a service, 4 Degrees can help you get on the platforms that you need to be on, get the message right, and get it in front of the people who need to see it most. So number four, D-E-G-R-E dot E-S. John of All Trades podcast is produced by Deft Communications. Check out Deft on the web, D-E-F-T-C-O-M dot U-S. As of this month, I am kicking off... Three brand new podcasts that I'm working on. I'm doing technical production and helping do show concepting. I can help your business tell its story in a brand new way, whether that's through podcasting or whether that's through more traditional PR tactics. D E F T C O M dot Communication. Stay up with John of all trades on social media. That's J O A T pod. Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, Pinterest, and Instagram. First job series drops on Mondays. New episodes drop on Wednesdays. So, until I hear you again next week, say goodnight, Gracie.
1: That's good, Johnny.